0: And with that being said, if you would please open your Bible with me to the book of Jeremiah. To the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Um, If you're in Psalms, you're not far enough. If you've gotten to Malachi, you're way too far. Uh, But we're going to be in the book of Jeremiah. It comes right after the book of Isaiah. Tonight, or today, sorry, we're kicking off a brand new series called The Seven Deadly Sins. The Seven Deadly Sins. And before uh, we get to the seven deadly sins, uh, we're going to spend some time today and possibly next week really just opening up, uh, really and laying the foundation uh, for this this series, and uh, then we will dive into these. Now, uh, first and foremost, I have a question for you. How many of you, by a show of hands, uh, remember the Space Shuttle Columbia that launched on January 16th of 2003? Okay, a handful or a good number of you, good. Now, on January 16th, when the shuttle Columbia lifted off, it was supposed to be just a routine flight for this NASA crew. Now, shortly after that flight took off, a piece of insulating foam from the shuttle's external fuel tank broke off and it struck Columbia's left wing. Do you guys remember this? You guys remember the story? Right. Now, this action was caught on video, but it was presumed by NASA that no serious damage had occurred to that space shovel. However, serious damage did occur. The foam from that fuel tank actually punctured the wing's thermal protection system, and the seriousness of the damage became evident when the Columbia shuttle re-entered the Earth's atmosphere just two weeks later on February 1st, the damaged wing was no longer protected from the extreme heat that, that caused uh, during re-entry. And that shuttle disintegrated in mid-air, killing all seven astronauts. Do you guys remember this? NASA's failure to correctly assess the damage prevented it from taking action that could have been avoiding that could have avoided the devastating results now to move on to a different shuttle launch most of us have heard the words "Houston we have a problem" yeah the phrase that was penned by the crew of none other than Apollo 13 communicating a technical breakdown to their base in Houston Now this phrase has become so widely known in our culture by people that it is used to indicate any sort of problem. The Columbia could have said, Houston, we have a problem because they did. Well, it's no mystery though for us today that we really all do have a problem. And it does not take much to figure out that we all have the same problem. It's the problem of sin. We're all sinners and it's not just a problem, it is the problem, sin. The Bible tells us in this verse that's going to come to the screen in just a moment, Romans 3.23, we all have heard it, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's impossible though for you and I to describe every single way that we fall short, but the key note for what Paul was saying is that everyone does fall short which is why he said in Romans 5 just two chapters later wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin and so death passed on to all men for all have sinned the apostle Paul regarded Genesis chapter 3 as totally and historically accurate and true And it's important for us to understand this morning that the Adam and Eve account in the Bible is not an optional passage that we get to accept or reject or allegorize away in some way. Because according to the Bible and according to Paul's theme there in Romans chapter 5, you cannot take away the truth of Genesis chapter 3 without taking away the principles that lay the very foundation for our salvation. Adam... And I'm not going to dive too deep into this because everyone's heard the the story of Adam and Eve in the Bible. But Adam was the one that was truly responsible for the fall of the human race, not Eve. Now, before you start jumping down my throat and say, Pastor, well, Eve ate first, especially you men, okay? There's not a way to jab at your wife. Before you say that, Eve was deceived the Bible tells us when she sinned. But the Bible tells us that Adam was with full knowledge when he sinned. He knew what he was doing was wrong. And so death entered the world and spread to all men as a result of Adam's sin. And so God promised Adam. And what a promise it will be. The day that you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. Sin, death. Are both connected. And we can know that all men are sinners because all men are subject to death. Now, it sounds odd to our individualistic ears, but Paul clearly teaches that we all sinned in Adam. Adam is the the common father of every person on the earth. Every human who has ever lived was in Adam's genetic makeup. Therefore, all mankind actually sinned in Adam. And this truth this morning may make us uncomfortable, but it is still the truth. It is still the truth that even the smallest baby is a sinner subject to death. David understood that very thought when he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my mother's womb, in sin, she conceived me. Psalm 51.5. It was G.K. Chesterton author, pastor, theologian that responded to a question when asked by a well-known writer of a famous newspaper article. The article in the paper that was published said, what is wrong with the world? Chesterton replied, dear sir, what is wrong with the world? I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. You see, when you and I look at the world and wonder what's wrong, church, we are what's wrong. We Sin is a very broad subject to tackle in any church setting because it has thousands of faces. Sin is not really a theme that is preached or taught much about in today's culture. But the reality is is that Christ died for sin and we will never truly know and experience the life-changing power of the gospel until you and I understand at least to some degree that sin must be exposed and eradicated from our lives. Paul wrote three chapters later in Romans chapter 8, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul constantly reminded us that living after the flesh always ends in death. And we need the reminder often Because we are deceived into thinking that the flesh really offers life when it does not. It was John Owen, considered by many to be the greatest of all Puritan theologians, who was the English pastor, chaplain, and advisor to Oliver Cromwell, And the vice chancellor of Oxford University in Oxford, England, that said, This be always at it whilst you live, cease not a day from this work, be killing sin, or it'll be killing you. And sin does kill, does it not, church? Not only through physical death, but sin kills in so many other ways, subtle ways. And the thing that sin kills, the, the, the essence, its starting place is namely this, that sin kills the joy that God intended for you to have in Him. Sin kills that joy. And before we go any further, I need for each one of us to grasp and understand this thought. We were praying downstairs before service in I was talking with the prayer team a little bit about what our prayer has been leading up to kicking off this series. And so I just want to make a, a few statements before we even dive into the text. Christianity, and please, please, please don't miss this. If you get nothing else this morning, don't miss this. Christianity is not merely or evenly or mainly about correcting your bad habits. Christianity is about satisfying and fulfilling you in the deepest way possible. Therefore, making God look as great as he is. Our hearts were designed to enjoy a full and forever joy. Not some pitiful temporary pleasure for which we are often too prone to settle on. Pride. Envy. Anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, low. They're woeful, inadequate substitutes for the wonder and beauty and affection of God. The seven deadly sins rob us. They don't restore us. The seven deadly sins, they numb us. They don't nourish us. They slaughter us. They do not save us. And in the book of Jeremiah, God sends this weeping prophet. And he comes to expose and explain to the nation of Israel what went wrong. How did they wind up in this way, in exile, experiencing a life of ruin? What's going on? What's the problem? And Jeremiah is like, Israel, Israel, you you have a serious, serious problem. So if you would, look with me at Jeremiah chapter 2. Let's do Jeremiah chapter 2. We'll start in verse number 1. And he says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, where is the God who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us into the wilderness in the land of deserts and pits, and the land of drought and deep darkness, and a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruit and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and you made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that they did not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord. And with your children's children, I will contend. For cross to the coats of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And this is God's word for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now, Lord, and we ask that you would illuminate this portion of scripture. We ask now, Lord, that you would help us to see the the path that leads to destruction versus the path that leads to life and joy and peace. God, I ask now that you would put a craving inside of us to chase after your truth. The abundance of truth that is readily accessible at our fingertips. And Holy Spirit, I'm asking for an understanding in this place this morning. And I ask and pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. As you listen to the words of our loving Lord to his people here in Jeremiah, I was struck with a profound sense of God pleading with those who were supposed to be following him. It's the language of intervention that we see here in the book of Jeremiah. In essence, God is saying, listen, don't you get it? Don't you understand how you ended up this way? God is telling the people of Israel, and he's saying to us, church, stop and think. This is a language of love to God's deluded children who have exchanged their joy for that which could never truly satisfy. All sin, church. Rises from our confusion and convoluted attempts to try and secure joy apart from God. And so when we talk in the weeks ahead about these seven deadly sins, please note this one thing. All sin is deadly. It's like going to a pit of poisonous snakes and and being asked, which one of them do you want to bite you? All sin is wicked but in the seven deadly sins, we have what I'm going to call the A-list of sins. Now, nowhere in the Bible is this list specifically laid out. Yes, there is a portion of Scripture in in Proverbs that says, these six things does the Lord hate, and seven are an abomination for the Lord, but that list and the seven deadly sins are not congruent. The the, the list is, is more like a list of capital or or root sins from which all other sin seems to be tied. Now, the seven deadly sins actually originated from a bishop who categorized them and they have been passed down for centuries and centuries in church life. Books and even movies have covered the seven deadly sins. One author describes these as deadly and the reason that he describes it this way is because he said they are sinful dispositions which, if given free reign, would take over our spirit, our soul, and our body, leading us further and further down the wide road of destruction. The seven deadly sins are the leading and breeding sins that nest deeply in our hearts giving birth to other sins. Old Bible scholars and and theologians call these sins vice sins. How many of you know what a vice grip is? Hey, would you put that picture up there on the screen for me? Here's a a couple of pictures uh, of vice grips, different types of vice grips. Now I want you to just hang right there for a moment. Like a vice grip tool that slowly and steadily clamps down a vice sin, does the same thing. It slowly and steadily clamps down on your life. These sins take hold of your life and they keep you entangled or ensnared. I want you to please note this morning that vice sins, the seven deadly sins, the sins that talked about that are talked about in the Bible do not take hold overnight. Did you hear me, church? The vice sins that we are about to talk about over the next several weeks, do not take hold overnight. They're internalized. They're formalized over time. We might even say that they have been forged into you. There's a song that um, I know not everyone is a fan of casting crowns, but there's a song that they sing that said, it's a slow fade when you give yourself away. That right there is what you see in Scripture, a slow fade. They, they become the sinful patterns and habits that we form over time. They become woven into the very fabric of our disposition. I know it's not Christmas time, but one of my favorite books and plays to watch is Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And as I was putting this sermon together, all I could think about were the chains that held Jacob Marley in that book, in that play, in that movie. They were forged by his own choices. They were forged by actions, one cruel link at a time. And the same as it is in our lives, the the vice sins encompass us They weigh us down. They follow us every single place that we go. And when we turn to these vices, these killjoys that I will call them, these lovers, what we see is what is wrong with us. That we have distorted and, and disordered love whereby God has been completely replaced by something or someone else in this life. And that's what, Israel's issue was here in Jeremiah. And that's oftentimes what our issue is. And that's very core. The essence of sin is denial. And so the first thing I want you to see is that the root of our problem is revealed in our denial of sin. The root of our problem is revealed in our denial of sin. Please listen carefully this morning denying that you're a sinner brings fatality admitting that you're a sinner is your only hope of salvation in this place and the problem is this man does not and oftentimes will not admit that very thought sin is is a denial and it was the problem of israel and it's our problem still today insights into the seven deadly sins reveal our unwillingness to admit we have a problem and here will be the danger for us sitting here. Herein lies the very danger over the next several weeks as we study through these seven deadly sins. It will be namely you and I saying, I'm not prideful, but I know who is. I wish they were here to hear this sermon. Like, I'm not envious, I'm not angry. I mean, I'm not. I'm not lazy, but my kids are, my spouse is, my coworkers are. I mean, I'm, I'm not greedy. I mean, man, I give what every average American Christian gives, 2%. I mean, it's the people on Wall Street that are really greedy. I mean, I was generous once. I mean, I don't struggle with gluttony. I mean, half of the world is starving and the average American is overweight. And I'll just leave this one for now. I'm not lustful. It was Adam and Eve all over again. Deny, blame, hide. Deny, blame, and hide. And in the text today, God is pleading with people to see their sin to see what they have done to stop the denial to recognize we have a problem I mean think about it like this let someone criticize you most of the time our reaction is immediately denial (laughs) I'm not that way I mean like yeah I know consider the source right? but when was the last time we considered God's voice? You know, God has often brought people into my life to point out to me how I really was. I mean, even if we think the person that comes into our life is a cuckoo bird, all right, it could be that the very words that they are speaking to you is God's way of revealing to you who you really are. I mean how we respond to compliments and criticism really reveals a lot about who we are. You know, we we tend to deny the things that are wrong with us. It's why we don't ask for help. It's why we reject discipleship and accountability in this life. It's, It's why we are quick to point out the faults in other people. We just don't want to admit that we have a problem. We, we deny that we have a problem, but there is no denying one thing. People living in denial are pretty much joyless. They're joyless. Maybe momentary happiness at times in their life, but no eternal joy for the person who lives in denial. When I started doing my counseling training to become a certified biblical counselor several years ago, we were taught in a, How many of you know the, uh, the man, uh, pastor, author, uh, by the name of Paul Tripp? I, I've talked about him a little bit. I've, I've even recommended some of his books. Uh, Paul Tripp had a huge piece in doing my training to become a certified counselor. And he used to say to us that denial is described as the force field that pushes away the voice of God. Denial pushes away the voice of others in our lives who try to bring truth to bear on our reality. He used to say that sin clouds the thinking and distorts the reality was a phrase that he used to use over and over and over with us. And as I thought about that very thing, that sin clouds our thinking and distorts our reality, I I began to realize that we... Just like Adam and Eve buy into the lie that we can somehow be happier, that life could somehow be more pleasurable by trying to fill our life with things that could never satisfy drugs, alcohol, sex, pornography, food, things that will never truly satisfy you ever, because we are attempting to fill a God sized hole with creation and not the Creator Himself. You see, that the beauty of the Garden of Eden was not meant to satisfy Adam and Eve. It was the unbroken and perfect relationship that they had with God that was supposed to fulfill their life. Their joy was not found, though, in the Creator. It was found in the creation. And their joy, their, their sacrifice killed their joy. It killed it for a self-centered, self-pleasing choice. If you're a note-taker in here this morning, I want you to write this down, that our joy is killed when it's not based in and on God. When your joy is not based in and on God, your joy is killed. When we are self-centered, God is no longer the center of our joy and everything in our life becomes off-centered. The the proof of Israel's sin here in the text is unearthed in a verse that we didn't cover. I want you to look with me at verse number 19. Listen to what Jeremiah speaks by inspiration of God. He says in verse 19, Your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. And fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. You know what I thought was really interesting about the the name that was given? The Lord of hosts is the fight God. The God who defends you. The Lord of hosts. This is the Lord of hosts talking. The one that we see in Psalm 46 that he says that God breaks the bow and bends the spear and causes the wars to cease. That makes the mountains melt. Same God is saying, you don't fear me. You've forsaken my name. God is telling the church, he's telling Israel, you're killing your joy. You're killing your joy. Your life is becoming bitter and angry and discontent and evil and distressed. It's filled with hurt because of your choices, because of your actions. Your own sin has caused this. You're breaking your life apart. You're destroying your own soul on the anvil of your own choices. Can't you see it? Stop the denial. You have a problem. When I was oh, probably around the age of four, give or take, I remember sitting in my parents' suburban outside of a relative's home talking with my mom as a young boy about heaven and hell. And I remember in that moment of my life realizing I didn't want to spend eternity separated from God. Did I understand everything at the age of four? No. Do I understand everything now at the age of 34? No, I don't. But I remember 30 years ago, praying, asking God to rescue and save me, but it really wasn't until I became late in my teen years, when I fully, truly surrendered my life to God, and I did this very thing. I sought everything that I could to fulfill God's place in my life, and it was absolutely and utterly miserable. But I remember being right down the road here at what was called Res Life. Pastor John is still down there. You may not agree with the things that they do or the things that they say, but God used Pastor John in my life in a tremendous way. And not only that, but there was a man who was a worship pastor there by the name of Jared Gregory who is probably one of my greatest friends still to this day. And I remember Pastor John stepping into the pulpit and the old building. It was packed. It was a Wednesday night. And I remember living a life that was complete hypocrisy. I was a youth leader. I was going to go into ministry and then I would walk out of those four that the four walls of that building, and I would live a life pleasing to Satan, not to God. I was addicted to pornography in such a strong way in my life that it affected everything that I did. It made me treat one of the greatest gifts of my life in such awful ways degrading the very blessing that God gave. And Pastor John stepped into the pulpit that night saying that the Lord had given him something completely different than he had planned on. And he said, tonight I want to talk to you about secret sin. And he begins to unpack scripture and I felt the weight of the Holy Spirit unlike anything I'd ever felt. And I remember following service, I told my wife, I said, you can head home. I said, I'll walk because we just lived up the road. And I said, I need to talk to somebody. And I I remember sitting there and telling Pastor John that sin was a horrible malignancy in my life. That it was literally destroying every avenue. And I said, Pastor John, I remember praying, asking God to come into my life. I remember, I remember that day, I will never forget it. I said, and yet I have chosen, I have chosen this own path, and I don't want to walk that way anymore. There is no cure for the malignancy of sin in the human life outside of Jesus Christ. There is no cure. Isaiah talks about how it's an incurable leprosy of the soul in Isaiah chapter 1. And all of humanity is sick with it from top to bottom, inside and out. And as sinners, we cannot improve our own condition. Jeremiah, just a few chapters later, says, Can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Can the leopard take away his spots? Can you who do evil also do well? There has to come a point in this life where we recognize and realize that our tears and our sorrow cannot atone for our sin. We have to come to a place in this life where we realize and recognize that the good deeds that we do do not make up and make amends for all of the wrong that we do against a holy God. We have to recognize and realize that just speaking that we have personal devotion does not soften the guilt or cover the guilt in any way in this life. Please do not buy into the the erroneous concept of purgatory. The the, the fires of hell over a million lifetimes could never purify the soul from its own corruption or atone for the life of sin. Never. And if you're in here today or you're online or or you're someone who will go back and listen or watch this later, if you're looking for a do-it-yourself solution to the problem of sin, you will only shackle yourself all the more securely to your own guilt. That's all that's going to happen when you look anywhere else. So, then what, Pastor? What is the solution to the sin problem? Because there has to be one, right? There has to be. There must be a way. That God can be completely satisfied in his perfect righteousness and still display rich mercy. There has to be. Well, I'm delighted to tell you this morning that there is a solution to the human sin problem. And it's called the gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the cross that Christ sacrificed himself on provided a way to God by enabling the only acceptable sacrifice to atone for human sin once and for all. So the sinless one, the Lamb of God, offered as a perfect sacrifice for sin according to John chapter 1. And it was for that very purpose for which he came in human form to sacrifice himself. For those of you who have been walking through our Wednesday night Bible study in 1 John, we know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Isaiah, one of my favorite prophets of the Old Testament, prophesied saying, Surely our griefs are what Jesus bore. Our sorrows are what Jesus carried. He was pierced. For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, he was chastened for our well being, and that all fell upon Jesus. Isaiah 53. Christ offered himself without blemish to God, according to the writer of Hebrews. He paid the penalty to the fullest on our behalf. All of the sin was imputed to Christ, was placed upon him, and he died. But thank God by the power of God in him, he rose three days later. Amen, church? Because the the resurrection is, is key to salvation. It's key to the gospel. Because without the resurrection, then Jesus dying on the cross was of no good for our sins. There are over 500 witnesses to Jesus post-resurrection. Not just labeled in the Bible. I'm talking about historical documents written by historians and writers who were not even Christian that say that Jesus resurrected. That Jesus was alive three days later. And so Jesus rose from the dead to declare victory for the first time, not over just death, but over sin as well, defeating Satan. Romans 4 tells us that he was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised in order to justify. And further than that, church, God reckons all believers righteous because of Christ. He accounts christ's righteousness to you as a believer i think that's a beautiful picture is it not that it was your sin that kept you out of living peaceably with god and yet through the sacrifice of his son you can be seen as righteous second corinthians five twenty one. he made him god made jesus to be sin who knew no sin So that we might become his righteousness. God redeems those who believe. And he makes them new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 All those who are in Christ are a new creation. The old or the former things have passed away. And behold all things become new. And so if you are a believer in here this morning. You should rejoice because you know those truths. You should, you should be jumping for joy while you're seated. Some of you will get that in a couple of hours. It'll be fine. Every moment that God allows breath into your lungs, you should never, ever, ever forget. You should always remember that you have an entirely new nature because of Jesus Christ. And that new nature gives you a love for righteousness. That new nature gives you a love for truth and a hatred for sin. And if you're unsure of your salvation this morning, if you are unsure, hearing those truths should bring you to a point of despair. And I don't mean to be harsh in any way, but it should bring you to a point of despair. It should bring you to a place where you say, well, what could I possibly do to change my hopeless condition? And the answer is nothing. Nothing at all. You are utterly dependent on the mercy of God for your salvation. But if you cry out, if you cry out with your heart this morning, Something akin to that which the Philippian jailer said when he said, What must I do to be saved? Then take heart. Take heart this morning. Why? Because the Spirit of God is already working inside of you. What must I do to be saved? Jesus was so clear. Jesus was so concise when he commanded the troubled sinner to repent and believe in Mark chapter 1. He was so clear to repent is, is to turn away from all of your transgressions. I mean, the prophet Ezekiel explains it beautifully in Ezekiel chapter 18. And if, if confessing and forsaking your iniquity and having a complete hatred of sin is what repentance is, if it's stressing to turn away, then what is the believing? The believing is turning towards someone and that someone is Jesus Christ. So I'm turning away from my sin and myself today and I'm turning towards the person who offers life. I love what Luke pens in Acts chapter 16, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. You know, you you can't lay... A hold of Christ while still clinging to your sin. Did you hear me? You can't lay hold of Christ while you're trying to cling to your sin. So unless you pry your heart from the passing pleasures of this world, you'll never truly see God for who he is. I mean, God's salvation is from the flames of an eternal hell involves a glorious liberation from the control of sin in this life. And church, that's good news. That's amazing news. You can be set free from sin's dominion in this life. Take hold of Christ. Take hold of everything that the gospel offers you seriously because guess what, church? It may be your last opportunity. And I'm not going to stand up here and and be all doom and gloom and, and, and be the hellfire and brimstone preacher like Amos was in the Old Testament. But you don't know what the next 30 minutes hold. You don't know what the next five hours hold. You don't know what the next week or month or year holds. Do you guys remember the story that I shared with you several months ago about the young lady in our youth ministry? She's a junior in high school, summer camp. God was working in her life. You could see it. You could see everything about it. It's like she was running to the altar every single time. There was an opportunity completely broken. And I remember talking to this young lady night after night after night of summer camp. And on the final night that we were there, she said, I'm not ready to do this because I want to live my next year in fun while I'm a senior. I want to have fun one more year and then I will give everything to God. Three weeks later, she died in a car accident. I remember standing in the chapel of our church where our youth group met having a funeral for a young lady aged 17 years old who three weeks prior told me I can't give it all to God because I want to have fun. What do you say to a parent? What do you say to a sibling? Your sister is in hell? Church, it may be your last opportunity. We need to run hard and fast to God. We need, and and for those of you who are believers, if you've gotten away, you need to return to God. Because the, the lover of your soul. The one who paid your sin debt and gave you eternal life is waiting. Our only hope in this life of dismantling sin and getting out of its vice grips on our lives only comes through the power of the gospel. And to be honest with you, we need a strong dose of justification and heart transformation. We need a ministry work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I am not talking about some mystical, like, cloudy thing going. No, we need a work of the Holy Spirit. I was preparing for this and I was like, God, give me a really clear example from Scripture that I can use to kind of undergird everything that I have been talking about. And the very first thing that he gave to me was the woman at the well. Everyone knows the account of the woman at the well. Divorced four times, living with another man, outcast, nobody likes her. She has to go to the well to get water in the hottest part of the day when nobody's there. You come to this scene where Jesus is in a place where he should have really never been, according to outside. The Jew, the Samaritan, they're meeting for the first time at Jacob's well, of all places. Jacob's well from the Old Testament. And this woman is is filling her life with things that could never truly satisfy her. She was stuck in a pattern of sin and self-destructive behavior. And Jesus says to this woman, if you drink from this water, you'll be thirsty again. But if you drink from the water that I give, you will never thirst again. And in fact, Jesus went beyond that and he says that the water that I give to you will be a well springing up to eternal life. Do you know where Jesus got those words from? The same place that Isaiah got them from God, from the Holy Spirit. Jesus came to a world of dry hearts and thirsty souls and empty lives and he invites us to come and to eat and drink and live. Do you remember what the woman at the well did once she received Jesus? Most of you are like, she ran and told everybody, right? Yeah? There was something she did first. She left her water pot. She left her water pot. Why? Why? Well, because she had the very well, the living water springing up inside of her, bursting forth with life, satisfying her in ways that she had never before experienced. And as your pastor, I say this in the most loving way. Some of us are continuing to walk down a very dark path. And we're making attempts to fill our water pots with things that will never satisfy us. According to the scriptures that I hold very near and dear to my life, we can get more than just a drink. We get more than just a drink with Jesus Christ. And so I want to leave you with this thought. When are you going to tap into that well? When are you going to tap into that well? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, in this place, and we thank you for the truths of your word. We, we thank you, God, that you, you sent your son to make a way. That all sin was placed upon him. That he was beaten and, and bloodied and bruised for our sin. That he died. But Lord, we thank you for the resurrection because life comes with that resurrection. And so, Lord, I'm asking in this place right now, if there are those who do not know you, God, that they would be willing to cry out to you in this place. Lord, that those who may not have a relationship with you, that they would want that living water like the woman at the well the one who is seeking after relationships and, and sex and, and every other thing, Lord, and nothing would satisfy except for you. And so whatever it is in this life that is, is attempting to take your place, Lord, I'm asking right now that we would have the strength to lay it aside. That we would have the strength to place it at the altar where we meet with you. And for the believer in here, the one that's still attempting to fill their life, I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would make us uncomfortable in our sin. That there would be nowhere to turn except for to you. Not to our spouse, not to a substance, not to food, not to anything else except for you, Lord, because you are the healer, you're the restorer, you're the protector, you're the life giver, the sustainer, Holy Spirit, we need a work of you. Mold us and shape us in this place. And for those who may be in here this morning that are saying, God, I have a decent relationship with you. I'm I'm seeking you. Holy Spirit, in those people, I pray that you would give them eyes to see the ones that are lost, hurting, and broken around you.